We would like to acknowledge the Yuggera people and the Turbal people as the traditional custodians of Mianjin, the lands on which we record this podcast today. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of For the Health of It podcast, a podcast made for healthcare professionals by a nurse on the inside. So my name is Jess Tully, and I am the brand ambassador of Healthcare Australia, but also a registered nurse. And this is a very, very uh, interesting and exciting interview for me personally um, as a medical professional. So I've got a, an awesome guy. He's pretty, he's pretty awesome, I feel, um, named Brett. Now, Brett started his day like any other day. And he decided to end his day with what he loved best. And that's going for a surf, hitting the ocean, catching some waves with his best mate, Joel. Um, and unfortunately, the day was not like any other day because something pretty horrific happened and it was every surfer's worst nightmare. So welcome to the podcast, Brett. I want to just chat with you about not only that day, but what was your life like before, I guess, that horrific day? What were you doing? What were you doing on that like particular day? Were you coming home from work? Because it was a day like no other. It was. And by the way, great intro. Um, I love the I love the storytelling that's gone into it already. It's um, you're right. It it was just uh, an an average day for me, except for the fact that it kind of wasn't in a in a way. I uh, I always think it's interesting when everyone looks back at that day and they're like, oh, you know, were there any signs that this day was going to be different? And I'm like, you know, through the lens of what has happened it's easy to look back and be like oh maybe that was a sign maybe it was this was a sign but the way that I kind of landed on it was to think about it as though it was just an average day that something very unaverage happened in so like that that day for me I mean I could easily look back at it and say the fact that I woke up to a phone call from my boss at 2 a.m saying that the surf shop that I worked into in at the time had been broken into um, was a sign that it wasn't going to be an average day, but you know, this is just one of these, these things that happens from time to time. So like my, my day was kind of just spent dealing with the break-in. So I was, spent a lot of time talking to doctors, spent a lot of uh, doctors, sorry, um, talking to the police officers, um, and doing the thing, like just cleaning glass out of the shop and, and kind of, you know, helping them with, with whatever they needed to figure out who had broken in and all these sorts of things. It's, not a typical day working in a surf shop for me, but it's something that, you know, after a day like that and after that's obviously a, you know, a bit of an annoying thing to deal with, uh, within, within work, uh, especially with, you know, the small shop that we're in. It's one of those things where, you know, something like that happens and it is a pretty big deal. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, yeah. So I, I spent the day dealing with that. And the reason I had decided to go for a surf that afternoon is because I was like, okay, after, after this day, I need to kind of do something to wash that off and to make me feel a little bit better and to try and turn it around as best as I can. And for me, something that has always worked in order to do that is the thing that I've always loved doing the most, which is surfing. So that's kind of what took me to the beach that afternoon. It's what, uh, it's, it's what I'd usually do. And that day was no different as far as how I would usually try and decompress. So I, uh, I had decided, you know, as soon as I left work, it's like, it doesn't matter what, what the waves are going to be like, I'm just going to get in the water and, and have a surf and, uh, as I was driving home, I was trying to figure out who, who I could call to come with. And first person I, I call is actually my good friend, Nick. 
and he doesn't answer because he's actually headed straight home after work because um, he's, he's got things to do there. So next port of call is, is another friend of mine, Joel. So I just kind of go through people until I find someone to surf with. And Joel was the, the person that, that answered that had agreed to come with. So organized to surf with him that afternoon. And, and that was kind of how the afternoon sets up, I guess. Like it's, it's one of those things where, you know, when you're planning on going for a surf and, you know, it, it's, you've dealt with this other thing during the day, it doesn't feel, you know, like there's, there's that much different. Like it, you kind of just almost on autopilot at that time, just going towards this thing that, you know, is going to make you feel a little bit better. And that's kind of where I was at that time. Yeah. And then next minute. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. Cause I remember you saying in some interviews that you had a bit of an, not an average day, but it was a bit of a meh day and you were trying to go for a surf to cheer yourself up. So, I mean, what, what are the chances, you know, you try and do something to, you know, lift your spirits and, and turn a bad day into a positive, And then it turns into a very, very, very bad day. Um, I'm going to be asking the generic questions during this interview that you get asked all the time, but I've got some other ones as well. But obviously it, people are clicking on this episode because they, they all want to know like, oh my God, what happened? Did you have a sixth sense? Like, you know, did you know the shark was coming for you? Like it's all those standard questions you get asked, right? So guys, if you listen to his documentary, Attacking Life, you can actually hear everything, but I'll run through it. So you, you've gone into the water, you're having a great time with Joel, you're catching some epic waves. You kind of at that point where you're like okay it's getting a you know the sun's going down we need to get in let's just maybe catch one or two more waves you were just sitting there by yourself and then what happened yeah so the the reason I was sitting there by myself despite the fact that I was surfing with Joel is he'd actually just caught a wave so you know I'd watched him catch this wave and he got it all the way down to the end of the lineup so he was probably like 100 150 meters away and I was just sitting there waiting for him to come back because we'd we'd had a fair bit of time out there to to chat and and talk about the breaking and all those sorts of things and uh yeah as as I was sitting there waiting for him to paddle back out I was kind of just reflecting on the day and the the thought that I was having at that time was you know despite how bad the day has been at least I've been able to do something to you know try and turn it around and I was feeling a little bit better and it was it was as I was having that thought that I get struck from my right side um, by something with an immense amount of force and the the power of this I've always found it difficult to describe what it feels like and I was never a good footy player playing like when I was growing up I was always very small and that always put me out on the wing somewhere where I wouldn't get tackled but it it felt like one of those tackles like just one of those things where there's like a, one of those bigger kids that you play against when you're younger hitting you really hard and like for me I just get thrown so far off my board like launched off my board almost and I land in the water and before I can even look around and figure out what had hit me and where it came from or anything like that, I look down and there's a shark biting me on the left leg. And for me, this is that that moment when you look down and you realize what is happening. It's almost like everything kind of just immediately freezes uh, as you kind of, you get hit with the impact of the situation. It's one of those things where you kind of, you immediately feel almost time slowing down to the point of stopping and it's a strange like it's just a strange sensation to try and describe and I know there's other people who have been through you know their own incidents whether it be you know like a car accident or something like that where they do describe this same feeling of time slowing down and that for me is where I think all of my other senses kind of perk up and I can start to take in all of these like really fine details of what's actually happening in front of me because although you know I say time felt time slowed down to the point of stopping I think for me that next 
probably five seconds felt like it lasted about five minutes. And there's so many small details within that five seconds that I can recall and that I can, it's, you know, imprinted on my memory. And like, I, I always point out the main, the main things that I could take in, in that moment were the feel of the shark skin, which was incredibly rough. Um, I could realize that there was no sound at all. So there was no, like, I, I couldn't hear myself screaming, which I later found out that's how Joel figured out what was happening. You could hear me screaming, but I was not registering this sound. I couldn't even hear the water splashing around, you know, or anything like that. So there was just this strange silence. There was like nothing going on there. And then there's obviously the visual as well. So I'm looking at this shark and I think there's a realization as you're staring this thing in the eye and you, you kind of feel so small and insignificant in comparison to this creature because you realize in that moment that, you know, you're not going to be able to argue with this thing. You're not going to be able to reason with it. You're not going to be able to tell it to stop. And it's that feeling that you mentioned uh, earlier in the intro, you know, it's that your worst nightmares are, are, that's happening, like it's in front of you. And there's just this incredible sinking feeling that you feel so helpless and so powerless in, in that moment, especially, you know, when you do, it does clock that it's a, a shark and that, you know, as a human, we're, we're very, very overmatched when it, or undermatched, I guess, when it comes to trying to battle with a shark in that situation. So there's this strange sensation throughout that that time when I'm taking all this information and trying to figure out, you know, what I can do. And I always say, I don't think I made any conscious decisions from that point forward. There was almost just like this flow on of effects, like one thing just happening after another. And it wasn't because of I was saying, oh, I'll try this or I'll try that or I'll do this. It was, there were just things that happened. And I think that goes to goes to speak to the instinct that, you know, it's obviously fight, flight, and freeze that's happening in that moment, which is an instinct-based response. But it's just like for, for me, the action sequence kind of goes like after I freeze, I try and do what everyone says you should try and do, which is try and punch the shark, uh, which fails because you can't punch through water. It's incredibly difficult to do. A lot of people discount that when you're thinking about getting attacked by a shark. Um, and then the next thing that I, that I attempt to do is to just pull away from the shark. And I guess this is probably the flight part of the fight, flight or freeze response is trying to get away from the situation. And this is where I make what is essentially the biggest mistake of that afternoon, which is pulling away from the shark. And it's, it's a perfectly natural response because if you were to think of, you know, if you're sitting at a desk there and a spider crawls across the table, and if you're like me and a lot of other people, you're probably going to try and like get away from the spider. That's the natural response. But the unfortunate thing for me in that moment is like our human bodies are nothing compared to how sharp the teeth of a shark are. So as I pull away from it, it doesn't let go. Uh, it holds onto that chunk of flesh and essentially just completely separates it from my body. And the first thing that I, I do is to not look down. Um, there was something in the back of my head saying that's not going to help. And plus despite what had just happened, I realized that this is kind of my, my window of escape. So I just put my head down and start swimming towards the beach and I swim as hard as I can. I only get about 20 meters further in and I had this thought come over me, which is terrifying. And the thought is, I wonder if this thing's going to come back a second time. And that is a terrifying thought to have. And I think the only thing more terrifying than that thought is looking over your shoulder to see it approaching again. And luckily I have enough of a reaction to put my hands out to try and stop it. And there's this second moment, which kind of 
takes me back to that same feeling as the first one where I see the shark biting me for the first time. But there's this moment where my arms are outstretched, my hands are like on the nose of the shark as it's pushed me through the water. And there's this feeling of like, am I ever going to actually get away from this thing? Like I've already given up so much to get away from it once. Like what am I going to have to give away, give up to get away from it a second time? And that, that for me is one of the, the most insignificant moments of my life as far as how big I've felt. Like I've felt like I've been a, a speck of dust compared to the the size and the strength and the power of this thing, especially, you know, just how helpless you feel in that moment. So luckily as I'm, you know, trying to hold it at arm's length, I see this wave approaching and, you know, the the next action that I instinctively decide to take is when the wave hits us, I try and push the shark to one side and Luckily, the wave has enough power that it kind of separates us quite a bit underwater. It pushes me into the beach quite a lot. And by the time I surface this time, I luckily don't look up and see the shark coming back a third time. I actually look up and see um, Joel paddling towards me as as fast as, as he can. So he's obviously heard my screams for help and knows that he needs to get to me because I'm I'm in need. Uh, and look, I, I'm in, there's a lot of luck that makes up this situation for me. Um, and one of the ones that I'm obviously most grateful for is the fact that Joel made the decision to paddle towards me, because as a surfer, I think you, you haven't, you'd like to be able to respond like that, but you don't know what you're going to actually do until you're faced with that set of circumstances. And I think for as much as everyone would like to say, they'll, they'll paddle towards you and save you. Like if Joel paddled towards the beach, there's no part of me that would be able to hold that against him because you know, it's not necessarily human instinct to want to paddle towards danger like that. And I'm so lucky and so grateful that he did because when he got to me, he he just knew what to do. He knew he needed to get me to the shore. So he put me on his board, takes me to the beach, drags me up the sand, and then he just runs off to get some help. And there's this, there's this weird feeling of relief when you're on dry land where you're like, okay, the danger is gone. But for me, that's really where you know, the, the real story started because it's, it's just instantly sort of fighting for your life. And, you know, I, I always try and frame what happened on the beach. Again, I I mentioned the luck before, but I, I always think the, the luck is a really good way to talk about what happened next because each person that was there, what they did, everything that, that happened, if the right people weren't there, if they didn't make the decisions they, they did, if, you know, if the actions didn't happen in that specific order, like I, I probably wouldn't be giving this this interview right now. Um, like I was, I say, I was incredibly lucky Joel was there. I was incredibly lucky that he paddled towards me. I was lucky that the person that he ran off to get help from was his partner, Aggie. Uh, and this is the first time I'd ever seen Aggie uh, watching Joel surf. She says she doesn't really know why she came down to the beach to watch him surf that afternoon. Um, but again, I'm lucky that she did because Aggie is an intensive care nurse and knew exactly who to call, what support I'd be needing as far as paramedics and helicopters and stuff like that went. So having her coordinate that was incredibly, you know, lucky and very important. Um, while she was sorting all of that stuff out, Joel had run back down to me and there was another man walking along the beach. Uh, his name's John. He also doesn't know why he was coming along the beach that afternoon. Uh, has no sort of is yeah one of these rare situations that he he found himself in where he can't really describe why he went 
down to the beach that afternoon, but uh, John also happens to be a, a qualified nurse. Uh, and he was the one who helped Joel tie the tourniquets in the start with leg ropes and wetsuits and essentially was able to, to stop the bleeding for the first time until the paramedics and, and all of those professionals got there and could, you know, use the proper equipment and, you know, not have to use leg ropes and wetsuits and stuff like that. But th those people that were there that applied the first aid in the first case and, and coordinated that, that, you know, rescue effort were not only lucky, but like, it's... I think even if you were to say 99 times out of 100, I think it's more than that. I think, you know, maybe even, yeah. I, I don't even know how to quantify it with numbers, but 99.9% .9 of the time, I think my story sort of ends there in, in tragedy on the beach. But having the right people there, making the right moves and, and doing all the right things is, is what saved my life. And they're all people I'm incredibly you know, grateful for, and I'm, I'm indebted to for, for a very long time because it's, uh, it's one of those things I, I can only frame it through, through the lens of luck. Uh, I, I, there's no, there's no reasoning to why those people were there or why they did what they did. But after being as unlucky as I was to be, to be attacked by the shark in the first place, every single thing that happened after that is the luckiest moment of my life. And it's, it's really what has led me to, to be here today. Thank you so much for sharing. Like that was, wow. I mean, I've obviously watched your documentary, so I know uh, a lot of the sequence of events and the chain of events that happened that day. But just hearing you say it again, like still I got goosebumps all over my body because it's everyone's, it's like most people's worst nightmare. I, f I feel yeah. like everyone, but I won't put everyone in that category. But like even, even in a swimming pool, for goodness sake, people get scared of a shark or something in the water grabbing them. It's it's a, It's a true fear of so many people and it's, but the statistics of actually being bit by a shark is so low. Like yeah. it is crazy low. I forgot to write them down, but I have been Googling it. And I was actually like, why is everyone so scared of sharks when realistically the statistics show that it is such a crazy low number worldwide is insane. But you're right about the luck side of things because like we'll talk about all the medical stuff that happened after that because the fact that you even survived from even getting out of the water to then the next stage is incredible and and even just your recovery period but yeah just the the whole chain of events of like you even just getting out of that water you mentioned as well in your doco that like when you had caught that wave um which you know did save your life that way by pushing you towards the shore that you felt like a bump on your body and you're not sure if it was a surfboard or whether it was the shark no. and i think if he had come and bit you again and got you like on your abdomen or something like that you 100 percent would not be here today yeah so Oh, and he, I can't believe he came back. I can't believe he came back. That is so frightening. Yeah. It's, I think, I mean, going back to what you said before about, you know, the, the odds of being attacked by a shark and despite how unlikely it is, there is this innate feeling of, of fear. And I, I put it down to jaws, um, as to why a lot of people have that in there. But I think what it actually is, it's, uh, the best way to describe it is it, I think, it's being in a position as a human being that we're so not used to being in, which is part of the food chain. Like as human beings, we're, we're not even apex predators. We completely escape the food chain. So to be part of that is something that we, we don't know how that feels. And I think there is a real fear that comes along with that. So that, that for me, I think is where a lot of people, despite how, you know, you look at the odds and there's like, you should be more terrified of walking in a field of cows than you are going in the ocean because you look at statistics and there are far more cow related deaths than there are shark related deaths per year. And 
but there's just something about being actually eaten and being part of the food chain that as human beings it's such a raw part of our evolution that we we're not connected to anymore that i think is why people have that fear and it's it is it is a strange thing to think about and a strange strange thing to try and you know answer those questions as to why but probably a combination of yeah jaws and the fear that comes alongside that and i've actually been reading a book recently about sharks and they go into the the history of jaws and actually the guy who wrote jaws i forget his name at the moment but he he spent the later part of his life um, working on shark conservation because he was actually quite upset with the fact that his story and his novel because it was obviously a book before it was the film was something that you know contributed so negatively to the the image of sharks worldwide and has created them to be this monster that a lot of people see them as now and he felt so bad that he spent such a large part of his life in the back end of it trying to focus more on shark conservation which i think is quite quite an interesting perspective to to look at from someone who was essentially responsible for the way that everyone looks at sharks now heavy heavy for him to have to go through for sure but mm. it is true jaws is a massive part of that 100 percent. like i watched jaws as a you know young child i think i'm getting really old now but as a young young child i watched jaws and i've always had that horrible fear but i've got such a fascination with the creatures too like i um went to port lincoln to do a nursing contract and i like i went there specifically to shark cage dive because it's the only spot in australia to do it and the yep. guy that created the shark cage dive in port lincoln actually was attacked i think it was the 1960s um and he had horrific injuries and he survived he was spearfishing um and i love that you know he's in he's not even like afraid of sharks anymore he's he's in there in cages and creating like a i guess a positive view around sharks being like you can see them up close you know and they're not dangerous like you know you can't have that perception of them and being in the cage with them they were actually quite majestic underwater they were just doing their thing and they're actually quite beautiful to watch they're incredible not not, not the situation you had though <laughs> <laughs> as a surfer as well because I'm, I'm not a surfer myself is it uh like a normal thing to always go with a buddy just just in case there's accidents or something like that or was it more of a just you just wanted a you, you, your bro there just to like have a chat yeah everyone's different when it comes to to who you choose to surf with a lot of the times so there's a good chance if you go surfing there will be other people out in the water anyway I, I, because surfing for me has always been a combination of something that I've enjoyed to do, something that's been competitive, but it's, it's always been a way of coping for me. And a part of that is because it's where all my friends are. It's always natural for me to talk to my friends when I go for a surf. So it would always be normal for me to actually send a message or try and call someone to go for a surf anyway, because it's, it's part of my social connection. So yeah, it's, it's fairly normal for me. It's not always the case with everyone that you talk to. And like, I still you know, would spend quite a bit of time surfing by myself because you can't always, you know, have someone who's got a spare couple of hours to go jump in the water. So there's there's still plenty of times you'll go surfing by yourself. And for me, before the attack, it was never really a conscious thing that I looked at as far as, you know, having a buddy in the water in case something went wrong. But it's not until you, not until something goes wrong that you realize how, how important it is to have someone there as a backup because you know if you're stuck on the beach and you don't have that help or support no matter what it is like it obviously a shark attacks at the severe end of the spectrum but you know i've broken my ankle surfing before at same beach at bombo beach and um not that it's a cursed beach or anything like that um <laughs> it's it's uh it's, it's a great beach i think everyone should enjoy spending time there but it's uh i well, i was surfing by myself that day and just trying to walk up to my car with a broken ankle was a terrible experience so 
now I'm much more likely to message someone knowing how important it is to have that, that person just in case, just in case you never know. Yeah. And nurses go for walks along the beach because people might need you as well. Exactly. FYI. (laughs) So the train of events, you're on the beach. Okay. I'm guessing a sense of full relief that you can feel that sand under your body. But then obviously the next part of your journey is about to begin. Um, A lot of frantic, you know, stuff going around you. Were you going in and out of consciousness or were you actually awake for this whole period? I was conscious right up until I got into the helicopter. So yeah, I was aware of everything up until that. There was, there was periods where I was kind of fading a little bit, but yeah, I, I'm still aware of everything that happened up until, uh, yeah, up until the helicopter, which that was mainly just due to painkillers that I went out of consciousness. At that yeah. Set. I saw what you got given. No wonder you were um, on another level just there. So yeah. I'll go through cause, um, Brett actually sent me his medical records, which was, I w- I'm so honored that you, you know, trusted me with this information. It was so awesome as a healthcare professional to read this. I found it extremely fascinating. I've got little highlighted bits everywhere. Um, but your actual triage information. So, uh, like the bat phone will call when there's like a real serious emergency in a hospital to give them a heads up so they can start getting things ready for the patient, whether it's a trauma, whether it, whatever it is, an accident. Um, and yours was a category one, which is the most severe category to say, you know, this is a life or death situation, which yours was. Um, and it said shark bite, your blood pressure was 60 systolic over 40. Now for healthcare professionals to hear that, they would just be going, oh, because it's just, you know, that's showing you that you've lost so much blood. You've lost so much of your fluid and actually just surfing already, you're going to be losing so much of your fluid because you're dehydrating yourself because you're being so active and surfing is such an active sport. So having that blood pressure is a very scary thing. Um, But it says that you had given two units of blood en route. So, you know, the paramedics had actually organized that. So that is another chain of events that had with the whole luck side of things, because if you were in a more of a rural town, um, they wouldn't have blood. 100% no. And some hospitals don't even have blood. It's only, um, you know, bigger hospitals that even have that. So the fact that you were able to get that blood in you very quickly after that attack was just, you are so very lucky. But yeah, you did get 60 milligrams of ketamine. So that's probably why you were on another planet. And you do talk in your doco about some wild, really crazy dreams you were having in the helicopter. Um, about your whole recovery process, but it hadn't even started yet. You were still... <laughs> In the helicopter. That was that was definitely a very strange experience to to kind of go through that that whole recovery almost, and it it very much felt like a dream when I was going through it, but almost kind of picturing what each of the stages was supposed to look like was just a, a strange thing. Only to wake up in hospital and feel like you've got to do it all again. It was it was strange, but I guess that's what sixty milligrams of ketamine will do to you, right? Yeah, I mean, it's actually a horse tranquilizer. That's what it was originally used for. It's some it's whew, it's heavy stuff. <laughs> When I give ketamine to a patient, I have to close the curtains. I have to be like, I have to use my soothing yoga voice. I'm like, you're in a safe area. And then I'll give it to them because people trip out on that stuff. So yeah, I mean, pain, did pain hit you then? Or were you like not feeling any pain at this point because you had so much adrenaline and drugs gone board? Um, pain wise, I, there were a couple of different stages. There was so much adrenaline at the start that I didn't have any pain until I got to the beach and until Joel and John and Aggie were all around me helping. 
And at that stage, there was no pain in my leg. It was actually pain in my stomach. So I was actually getting them to check if I had been bitten there because I, I just didn't know at that stage because so much had happened in such a short amount of time. Um, I found out later, and you're probably someone that would know about this, that that pain was actually my organs starting to shut down due to blood loss, which goes to show how much blood I'd lost at that sort of stage. So that was the only pain I had up until then. So it was almost like these these intense pains and cramps within my stomach, but nothing in the leg. It was kind of mainly concentrated around there. But as time went on, then I, I guess that pain sort of closer to the leg starts to take over a little bit when you bring your awareness there. And I, I still, I didn't look down at any stage on the beach. Um, I, it took, I didn't look at my leg until three weeks in the hospital. So I, I just knew it wasn't going to be productive. And I think perhaps not knowing the extent of how bad it was didn't allow my brain to register the pain that could have been there. Yeah, then. So I, I think that's something that could have, could have helped quite a lot. But yeah, the, the pain, the pain scale, like I, I, start a lot of my uh, my presentations when I'm speaking with uh, a bit of a frequently asked questions. And one of the most common questions I get asked is, did it hurt? And I always say, no, it doesn't get it doesn't hurt to be attacked by a shark because there, there, there really was no pain for quite a long time, which is a strange thing for a lot of people to reason with. But I guess there's a lot of other things going on in that in that situation that kind of takes your, your awareness and, and things away from what could be perceived as pain. Absolutely, for sure. Oh, well, it's just a wild story. Honestly, it's it's crazy what you have been through because I'm going to go through the next section now. And this is to me is what just blew my mind. Now, you went through an ambulance and obviously um, your friend had told them you need a helicopter. So that is so incredible that she had that knowledge to alert them because that also is that whole chain of events with the luck. So you got a helicopter to a trauma center, which is like if you're going to have something like this happen, being at a trauma center is what is going to save your life. As I said, like I actually work in a lot of regional rural remote towns and this is where if things like this happen there, people will not survive because they don't have the things that trauma hospitals have. So um, they got that back call. They had everything prepared and they had already contacted the general surgical fellow, a vascular um, on-call doctor, orthopedics and plastics. So they had called every single person that needed to be within your care and every single specialty and having a specialty doctor and surgeon is what you needed. So you were so, so lucky. You then, by the time you actually arrived at the trauma center, you'd had three units of blood as well as two liters of fluid, um, which just shows how much loss you had had. Um, and you had injuries to your hand as well. You had hand and um, your leg. So you'd miss, you're missing three quarters of your thigh which is just, you know, I know that later on someone had brought the word amputation into your mind, but obviously you hadn't looked down. So you didn't even realize that was a possibility. But reading this, it's a huge possibility where you're like, this guy's going to lose his leg 100%. But the chain of events of you getting that particular vascular surgeon um, and having all this is just incredible. Your blood pressure had only gone up to 80 over 60, which is a tiny increase so having a patient arrive with that you were pale diaphoretic your heart rate was through the roof you were extremely cold because you'd been in the water you'd been laying on a beach so you were freezing cold which isn't going to help your organs so that whole just reading all that was just like crazy for me and then I've written down the back call was at 7 p.m um they had written their notes by 9.20, by 9.40, all those doctors had been called and were there. And you were actually in the operating theater by 11.15 p.m. So if you were bit at seven and you were 
11.15pm in theatre, oh, you're a lucky man. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. Like I, I talk about a lot of the luck that, you know, the, the average person who doesn't have all the insight into, you know, reading through the document that you've got in front of you there and being able to understand it and know what all those timelines mean. And it's fun, like it, I, I always find it fascinating talking to people who are either nurses or, or in, you know, in any sort of medical area with that expertise, they, they look at it through a different lens where like, I can say, yeah, it was great to have these doctors here. It was good that Joel was here. But when people look at, you know, that raw data behind, you know, things like blood pressure and, and, you know, just some of the things that, as you've said, have been incredibly lucky to, to, to me and helping me survive that I always find it fascinating and, um, and interesting to hear it from that perspective, because it's not one that I often have to focus on too much because there's not a lot of people that can understand it from, from that point of view, but it's, it's nice to know that you can appreciate the, the, uh, the medical and numerical side of things that a lot of people kind of overlook. Well, trust me, you are so lucky. Like if you had waited until midnight to get blood after losing that much volume, like you, you wouldn't have survived, you know, you would have just arrested. Like it's just, it's yeah, that reading it all and looking at the timestamp, like just even what happened in the water and then coming out and then looking at all this timestamping, I'm just like, wow, wow, wow. (laughs) That's why I was so grateful that you sent me these medical records. It's pretty amazing. And I also like credit to that hospital because they even got social work involved because they knew that you needed, you know, so much rehab, you know, you have your family, you've got your friends, you know, you need some mental health input. Like there's so much that happens and you have to look at the patient holistically and look at everything. You know, you're not just focusing on their medical care, you're focusing on everything of that individual from the moment they get to that hospital. And they'd already called social uh, a social worker in and they'd done such a thorough note. They'd helped with the media, they'd helped with your parents, they'd helped with everything. And I just, huge credit to that hospital. I think what they have done with your care was brilliant, like so brilliant. Um, and the way they wrote their notes as well was just fantastic. So you went straight into theatre. You had a full washout of your thigh just like to figure out what the injuries were and to whether if there was any major arteries that had been severed. And you had no major artery severed, which I don't even understand how, because three quarters of your thigh was missing. <laughs> so yeah, that, wow. I, I'm not sure if it is, if it's in the notes there, or I can't even recall who said this, but they were saying like the, the wound is like two millimeters away from the femoral artery, um, which, you know, uh, you know where the bite is and you know, you know what three quarters can, can look like. And yeah, the fact that there'd been no arteries severed is, is Crazy, like if that had happened, like you, you'll understand that I probably wouldn't have even made it to the beach. You wouldn't have, no. Nah. You, you might have made it maybe to the helicopter, but like, not, not beyond that. No way. Um, if they had gotten your artery, so the fact that you had that much blood loss with just all the other, you know, bits and bops ripped out, um, is another huge part of your luck as well. So you know they've gone in, they've cleaned it out, and obviously contamination-wise as well, you've got sand plus 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 everywhere. So they had to use 15 liters of fluid to clean out and and make sure that is, is as sterile and as clean as possible. So they have done such a great job with that. And they were got to assess that, you know, they got to assess, you know, what's been damaged, what's not been damaged. And then they sent you to ICU and then they kind of came up with a reconstructive plan straight away. They knew your age. You were 22 at the time. And, you know, they obviously knew this guy needs his leg. He's got a whole life ahead of him. We need to figure out a plan. When I was in hospital, I wasn't really too aware of, of you know, who was doing what. And 
what all of that was about because another part of that like my my mom was basically the person who was having those conversations and and kind of had the relationships with those people and you know despite her her best efforts and and all meaning well in in you know these conversations when they were figuring out what they could do like i know some of her uh ideas let's say uh one of them was she asked if they could grow a new quad in a petri dish which they said um is not going to be possible <laughs> and she also uh, asked if it was possible for my dad's quad to be transplanted into, into my leg which it's a great idea but i don't know how much that would have helped my dad <laughs> i can just envision the doctors just being like no yeah, <laughs> we're not yeah, there yeah. yet maybe yes. i mean hey maybe in 50 years but not not just yet yeah, not but just yet. in terms of the surgery that you did have it's pretty extraordinary and it's not really done very often no. So the procedure that you had, the, the way the way I've seen this particular surgery is with women who have had um, breast cancer and they've had mastectomies before. So they've had they've lost all that tissue because the breast has been removed. So you had your um, tissue on your back actually transported and taken off and all those muscles there and put onto your quad. And that's a latissimus dorsi flap, it's called. And I've only ever seen it, yeah, with with women with breast surgery. So when I saw that that's what you had done, I was like, oh, my God, that's genius. Like, that's actually so good. And I didn't know that it would be responsive to putting on a different part of your body. So the fact that you actually had that flap taken from the back and put onto that missing section of muscle there and for it to not reject as well and in your body accepted it and took it on and then you did all the skin grafts as well. I even saw your poor bum had a skin graft. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Skin grafts everywhere. I know. So it's um it is interesting when when I look back at what that surgery sort of was, I I didn't know too much about the details. Like they they kind of told me similar to how you just described it then, but for me it just meant nothing. Like all I cared about was can we do something to save my leg? Like there was I guess you have to be confronted with the reality of, you know, what it's like to lose that leg and for amputation to be a thing at, at some sort of stage. But, and as much as I'd tried to be like, okay, regardless of what happens, like you're, you're still alive and, and to be you know grateful and positive for that, it's still really difficult to come to terms with the, the possibility of still losing a leg. And I think, you know, obviously you've got the changes to your life that you might have to have there, but I think part of knowing that from the knee down was perfectly fine. And if I had to throw that away, that's that's like a hard thing to get rid of, right? When you know that's not damaged. So they they kind of told me what they could do. And I just put so much like faith in the fact that that was going to allow me to keep my leg and that that was going to be, you know, the best case outcome there. And, you know, they, they were even saying to me, like, when it comes to um, transplanting the muscle, they were like, yeah, we're going to connect the blood supply to keep the muscle alive. And connect a nerve which they're like it might make it work like it may work like we're going to give it the opportunity to but really that's not our priority like the priority is just to save the leg and i was like yeah i'm totally fine with that in the moment but i still remember like you talked about the muscle rejecting and for that first i think it was like a week they were doing regular um like pulse i guess pulse checks using the little ultrasoundy type of thing i'm not sure exactly what it is great great for me to come on a, a medical podcast and say ultrasoundy thing isn't it all right, you're um, a patient here. You don't need to know the word. Yeah. Um, and I remember every time they did it, I was terrified that it wasn't going to work. And they had two machines. One of them didn't work great, and the other one was perfectly fine. 
but they didn't know which one was which. So sometimes they'd put the faulty one on and it'd like be really faint or they couldn't, they couldn't hear it. And I was like, oh no, like what, what does this mean? They're like, I oh, will try the other machine and then it'd be fine. So it needs to fit in the other machine. The anxiety know, through the room. It was awful. It was awful. Um, so yeah, there's like, you kind of go through that little process of they've done what they can do, but there's still the chance it might not work. Uh, that's that uncertainty as a patient is pretty tough to deal with. Um, and I guess all you've got to do is just hope that they've done the best that they can do and that it is going to work because as a patient, there's nothing you can do there to, to help. Like you can't just stare at it and be like, fix, fix, grow. Yeah, fix like, it. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The actual procedure you had. So like, if you think about it, like those little, those little vessels are so tiny and that's why it's such a specialty as a surgeon to try to do that. To connect a blood supply from something to another thing is just extraordinary. And the fact that it actually did take as well and didn't get rejected is just even more extraordinary. So that's another part of your luck of your chain of events. But your, I was actually going to ask you as a, as a patient and dealing with this, I looked at your post-operative instructions post that surgery. So they've done that big surgery. They put the muscle flap on your quad to try to help with the in a reconstructive side. And when you're in ICU, it says 15 minutely flap observations for the first four hours. So a flap observation is when they're like checking that it's, you know, pink and checking that it's warm and checking that it's got a pulse, right? You want to make sure because if they don't do it 15 minutely, I mean, it, what if something happens and they don't, they don't know, right? So they're, they're checking it so frequently to make sure that if the blood supply starts to get cut off, that you could immediately go back to surgery and they could fix it. So I thought to myself, I was like, oh my God, that would have been horrendous for you to try to go through. But then it was 30 minute flap obs for the next 40, uh, six, uh, 48 hours, so two days. So you had a nurse with you touching your foot and you had that anxiety every 15 minutes to half an hour for two days. Yeah, it's, it is, there's definitely like the anxiety around it because you know why they're checking it and like you're aware of, you know, if they, if it's not working out what that could mean. But it's funny, like they obviously, yeah, they're doing it every 30 minutes and that includes throughout the night. So they, they come and they wake me up and they'd be like, Hey, we've got to do the obs. And I was like, I, I was always just grateful that they, they were there. Like I, I'd made a point and I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm sure a lot of patients are like this, but it seems like not a lot of patients like this. I'd always just say thanks, no matter what I was getting, whether they were giving me like get the needles full of blood thinners or they were coming to wake me up to do that. I'd always just say thanks. And they were like, oh, you don't have to like, and I was like, no, no, like for me, knowing that you are doing something to help is something that I'm grateful for. And despite the fact that you go through the anxiety of the every 30 minutes, they're checking it. For me, it's like, I'm, you just feel like you're in safe hands in that moment, knowing that they care and that they're doing those things. So as a patient um it is it's nice to know like as as annoying as it could be to have you know be be woken up to do those things it's it's really nothing in comparison to to if you felt like you had no care and that no one was looking after you very true very true but yeah I thought to myself like you that would have been really rough to go through all that and then just you know and I always feel so I mean nurses feel terrible like you know your patient just falls asleep and then you're like oh no I've got to go in and I've got to hook up their IV and oh no. And you just feel so bad. And then I, I hate when I walk in and I'm trying not to scare them as well. Like I don't want to be, I don't want to frighten them. So sometimes I'll like touch them gently. I'll be like, you know, Brett, Brett. And then they're like, oh, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then we just feel so terrible. But like, yeah, thank you for saying thank you to the nurses. That's, that's lovely of you. They're all great. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's just chat through quickly now the recovery. So 
you know, now that people are listening, you know, they know it's successful, right? So you've actually had this incredible surgery. Blood supply is good. Um, now it's the next stage. Now they've told you that you may not walk again. They don't know how it's going to take. They don't know how the muscle is going to work. Um, you know, you're a very active guy. You love living an active lifestyle. You probably can't do that anymore. And they've also said surfing is probably a no-go because they've used the, you know, the, the, the muscle that's in your back. So when you're trying to swim, you need to use your upper body strength with, this is why I can't surf, man. I can't, I can't get out there. It's just, it's too hard. So <laughs> I, I can't swim out. It's just too much. I like the surfing part, but I don't like the getting out there part, but you know, and then because they've done that procedure, it's like also your surfing journey is probably over. So now that you're starting your recovery, what were those emotions like to be like, oh my God, am I going to walk? Like how was the first steps with physio coming in during this time? Yeah. So it, I mean, obviously after the operation, you spend quite a bit of time where you can't do anything. It's, it's mainly just like lay there and, and try and heal. So there's a, there's a huge period of inactivity where you can't do a lot. Uh, and they're, they're really difficult times to kind of go through because that's when I was kind of dealing with those, those things that you just mentioned there, you know, wondering if I was going to be able to walk again and trying to, trying to reason with what life was potentially going to look like without surfing because for me surfing was was everything that I had so there's this feeling where you're dealing with despite the fact that you've you know you're alive they've been able to save your leg and there's a lot of positives there there's this overwhelming feeling where you're not sure what life is supposed to mean for you because the thing that makes you who you are is maybe not going to be a part of your life anymore so there's I think the hardest thing about dealing with that in in that time is that I couldn't put anything in my control to work on trying to get better because it was just about laying there and healing. Like I couldn't, I couldn't go and do anything. And that's, that's a tough place to be in. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, it's that loss of control, I think, which, which is what I've struggled with quite a bit. So as soon as I was able to start doing even just small things, I, I made sure that I did everything and, and did almost probably more than what I needed. So like even... For example, when I was able to get up on my feet again for the first time when I was still in hospital and this wasn't, you know, it wasn't weight bearing or anything like that. It was just the ability to get up on one of those big walking frames and to, you know, first of all, get to the bathroom and then second of all, to get to the door of the room. And then I, they, there was kind of like each day there was a new checkpoint. So I'd go like bathroom, door, and then it'd be like down the corridor and back. And then it'd be like around the corner and back. And it just kept extending. So I'd do like a lap of the, the ward. And then there was one day where I literally spent a good couple of hours just shuffling around doing doing laps because it was the only thing I felt like I could do that was in my control. And I think that for me was where I felt like, although that wasn't my rehab, it was just good to be able to do something that made me feel like I was putting, you know, a bit of effort into whatever a recovery was going to be rather than just laying there and, you know, hoping for the best. So that, that was one side of things. Like I had so I had a week in, in ICU all up, like that was split between, um, like ICU and like the step down ICU. Um, and then I had three weeks on a general ward. And then when I got moved into, um, the, the rehab ward for the last week, that was where I started to make a little bit of progress. And it wasn't so like, I still couldn't weight bear. I couldn't, I definitely couldn't bend my knee or anything like that. It was still very much let that heal, but I was able to start working on building a little bit of strength and and a bit of just like usability in some of my other muscles, because even though 
at that point, four weeks in hospital isn't, you know, super long compared to what some people can spend in hospital. Like I, I remember it kind of hit me the first day I was given like a tub of yogurt to try and open. I couldn't, I didn't have the strength to, to peel the lid off. I just like my arms had atrophied that much in that short amount of time. So getting into rehab was a good point because I could start to work on that. And like, it's only small steps, but it was good to be able to take those first steps forwards. And I guess rehab in hospitals, you'll be aware is, is kind of like getting you to a point where you can be independent and you can go back home. And like that, that's a, a big moment to be able to like walk, not walk out of hospital, but to leave hospital uh, and to, to go into a place where you're familiar, where, you know, you have all of your friends there, you can go and, you know, just be in somewhere which feels more comfortable rather than being like, I always say hospitals are obviously a terrible place to spend time in for, for many people, despite the fact that it's cold and the food's terrible. Like it's a very lonely place. It's, and I think being able to be back with those people that, you know, <laughs> that are a big part of your support is, was a massive step for me, but, but that was really the start of my recovery was when I left hospital. Yeah. Um, and that's because I was able to link up with my physiotherapist and he was someone that helped me massively be able to go through those next steps as far as, you know, ticking off those, those little boxes of being able to move my legs a little bit more and start to wait there and to move around and, and start to work through those goals of, of walking again and, and trying to progress a little bit more, um, which was its own incredibly lengthy and, and difficult process. Very much so. So considering you know, four weeks in hospital, you know, your upper body strength would have been like pretty strong, especially being a surfer. You guys have insane upper body strength. Considering that one month in hospital, you had lost so much of your muscle that you couldn't even open lids and stuff. That just shows like, you know, that moving around in hospital, healthcare workers like and patients listen to this. You've got to move around as much as you can and use your arms and all that jazz. So yeah, that's crazy that you had that much um, atrophy in in four weeks. So your journey in total with your whole rehabilitation and stuff was it around the five six month marker before you were like then walking and then being more active again. So yeah, I I have different sort of markers. I think after after two and a half months, roughly, I was able to. That was at the point where I was kind of walking without any crutches or or anything like that. Um, and I was able to get around the house and I could walk down the road and, and, you know, do, do those basic things, which was nice. And I wasn't moving, moving, you know, fluidly at that stage, but I could get around, which was good. The, the best part about kind of that checkpoint was, uh, I could get back in my car and I could drive myself around because I was able to bend my knee a lot more. Oh, the independence. Like, yeah, it was, it was. And like, I love my mom, but she, like, she was the person that was driving me around everywhere. So anytime I needed to go and get coffee with my friends or whatever, she'd, she'd drop me off and <laughs> pick me back. And just the ability to go and do stuff without having to rely on someone else, I think was was a big step for me. So that was like two and a half months, I'd say I'd regained pretty much all of my independence, which was great. Um, after about three and a half months, that was the point where I was able to go back to work. So spending all day on my feet, which was which is a good point. And then after five months, that was, it's funny, like a lot of people say, how long was your recovery? And it's hard to put a time frame on it. These are just checkpoints. Five months was my first surf back. Oh yeah, that's a good checkpoint. And that's that's obviously a huge one for me because it, you look at you know what I was told as far as what to expect with surfing and what it meant for me to get back in the water. That was that was massive. And surfing for me, five months in and that first surf back was 
nothing like the surfing that I was doing before, but it, it, it was such a big step and there's so much, so much pride and so much, um, you know, appreciation that I have when I look at, you know, that first surf back and knowing what it took to get to that point was, was such a huge, such a huge moment for me. And I think there's something about when you are achieving these little goals and these checkpoints that I mentioned, and, you know, you're starting to realize the things that, you know, you, they were told to you that they weren't going to be possible. When you start to achieve those and you realize how far you might be able to push this, that's when you start to look forward and you, you, it kind of just opens up this world of possibility as to what you might be able to achieve. And for me, that was, that was massive in being able to be like, okay, although this is my first surf back and it's the biggest thing I think I could ever achieve in my life. It was, it was kind of like, well, what next? And I kept pushing myself to, to try and achieve more. And a lot of it was very much surfing focused, but at that stage when you're like to be a good surfer, I wouldn't be able to do that without being somewhat athletic. So walking had progressed from walking to jogging to running and that helped surfing progress from just standing up on a longboard to riding the surfboards that I was beforehand to doing turns. And, you know, that, that was its own journey of progress. And, you know, I look at timelines and I'm like, well, if you go beyond that five months, it's like, I, I don't know if I still like now, seven years on consider myself fully recovered because obviously there's deficits to where I was before the attack, but it probably wasn't until you know, two to three years after the attack where I could essentially do everything without any sort of limitation apart from, you know, the the occasional, um, you know, limit that you'd find in strength where the leg will kind of just give way, but that's that's not the end of the world. You kind of learn to live around that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, um, your poor mum would have had a heart attack knowing you were going back on the water after five months. The poor anxiety of that woman, I tell you. Oh, my goodness. Did you have any fear at all getting back in the ocean or you were just completely just like so excited, so pumped to get back out there? Zero fear? Uh, saying zero fear would be a, a, like probably an overstep. Like I, I, I would say I think a lot of people would expect – going in the ocean and the fear of sharks to be at the top of the list. But for me, the bigger fear was not like, I didn't know what surfing was going to mean for me, despite the fact that I was going to be able to get back in the water and to surf. There was still this big comparison within me as to what I was going to be able to do that first surf back as opposed to what I was before. And I, I had to drop that comparison for me to be able to get back in the water. Um, and the way I was able to drop that comparison was trying to look at things, you know, logically and say, look, this first surf isn't going to define what surfing means for you for the rest of your life. You can still keep moving forward and, and see what that means. And I think that looking at it logically in that way was the same way I looked at sharks. Mm -hmm. I tried to look at it as logically as possible. And you look at the odds of being attacked by a shark and we mentioned it all earlier in, in the pod anyway, as far as, you know, other things we should be more afraid of and you know, the people always tongue in cheek say, you know, you've been attacked once, then what are the chances of it happening twice? And you say, look, I'd, I'd hope that it wouldn't happen again. You can never say it's zero, but you can look at the numbers. And for me, educating myself on sharks and looking at some of the, maybe some of the conditions or some of the, the things that went into the attack happening the day of, you know, of my attack, whether it be water temperature or time of day. I looked at that in a very logical sort of way to try and overcome that fear because I think that is probably the only way that you can deal with fear in a lot of different cases is to to look at things in a logical sense and to prepare yourself. Yeah. Um, right. Like you, you're never going to be able to throw yourself into that situation and just hope it's going to all turn out well because sometimes it might, but when it doesn't, then like that's a 
a big moment that you're throwing yourself into. So I, I look at, you know, logic and preparation as being a big thing that helped me not only overcome that that fear of sharks, which again, it wasn't zero, but I was, was able to reason with at that point. But then also that other fear of not knowing what surfing was going to mean to me at that point, I think was was a big thing to overcome. And it, it took a bit of time to to work through all of that stuff, but that's all part of that's all part of trauma really is is kind of it's the physical side of things is one thing but it's obviously far more of a a mental battle and and that that's what takes time yeah absolutely i think people listening to this podcast as well can can recognize your mindset you know from from the moment of the attack through your journey through post recovery you've got a very good logical as you said um and very positive mindset and you know there are dark times obviously but you you know you state it you know it's it's a thing that happens but you've got a really great mindset so this was seven years ago you've obviously been on this this journey tell me a little bit about what you're doing now because you're doing some pretty incredible things with your life right now post this attack um and it's to do with a lot of mindset and and things like that run through that with me yeah so i i kind of arrived at a point it was a couple of years down the track when it comes to like using the the attack as a reference point um, where, you know, I kind of regained a lot of the things that I'd lost, whether it like was walking again, was able to run, I was able to do all these amazing things. And I'd kind of taken up competitive surfing again and all of this, these things that I, I thought had, had been lost. And I was almost kind of going down that same path that I was living before the attack. And at that stage when I was trying to figure out what that meant for me, I was also starting to share my story a little bit more and speaking, um, first of all, in, in schools and then moving on to doing like corporates and conferences and, and podcasts and working on the film, which you, you've seen. And I was kind of weighing up what both of these things meant to me. And I, I think one of the most difficult questions I've ever asked myself in my life was, did you really go through this whole experience just to become the person you were beforehand? Like kind of looking at that path I was traveling down of, chasing that dream of becoming a professional surfer again and I think when I looked at what this whole experience could mean for me I don't think it was to become the person I was beforehand because I looked at what I was doing with sharing the story and the impacts that that was starting to have on other people and that was something that gave me a lot more a lot more purpose and it gave me something that I cared about which is beyond just myself and my own you know selfish desire of becoming a professional surfer so when I looked at this other thing I started to look at that as being something that meant a lot more to me. So that's something I've been doing a lot more in the last couple of years is focusing more on on the speaking and sharing the story. And obviously doing the film was a big part of that. And that's one side of the things that I care about these days that I do quite a lot is sharing the story with the hopes of helping other people. Um, but another side of, you know, the, the things that I focus on is challenging myself and pushing myself physically as well. I think when, when you've been through something like I have, it's you're always you know, and you've been through this process of asking yourself, like, what next? What is possible? What can you do with what is in front of you? You naturally take on, you know, new and different challenges. And that's always exciting to me. And those challenges for me have always kind of manifested in different physical um, pursuits. And, you know, the first thing I did was walking 100 kilometers um, for for Oxfam, which a a few people may have heard of before. Um, I've gone on to to run a marathon. Um, I've recently done a 50-kilometer ultra I've paddled between two islands in Hawaii and, and doing these things, it's it's not so I can, you know, brag about all of these things that I've, I've been able to do. It is for a purpose. Like I think number one is to challenge 
myself because these physical things I, I like to use as an excuse to keep myself fit and healthy and active. Uh, I'm not necessarily someone that can just go to the gym and keep working every day, keep my legs strong. And I know that's going to be a big part of my life from, you know, for a long time is making sure that that is in the best shape possible. So doing this allows me to, you know, keep my leg in, in, a, in good shape. But I think the other reason is to kind of, it's to, for, for me in a personal sense, is to test my own resilience. It's putting myself in that same position I was going through in the attack and the recovery and having to use the same things that help me deal with the struggles there. But it's just in a far more controlled situation with these challenges that I do. But I think there's a lot of value that other people can take in seeing someone like myself who's been through what I've been through and has been able to work through that recovery to the point where I've not only been able to achieve some of the the things that meant a lot to me in the start, such as walking again and surfing again, but seeing how far someone like that can push themselves, that's that's where I think people can look at it and it's a real tangible example of what humans are able to do. So that's something that I've I've always been a big um, you know, believer in is is kind of it's you know, it's really showing people that the things that I talk about and the things that I believe in aren't just words. They are actions and they are things that that are very tangible. Um, and I think when people can see that, they can then relate it to to things that they've been able to achieve and do in their own lives. And it might not be, you know, running 100 kilometers, but everyone has their own version of these things that they want to achieve in life that that they might not want to do. But, you know, and for me, that not wanting to do doesn't come from, you know, the, the desire. It comes from not wanting to fail at it. And I think failure is a part of life. And the, the more we can kind of grapple with, that being okay and you'd rather give it a go and you know deal with whatever that failure means if you do fail but if you put yourself in a position to achieve it and you do then you're only going to be better off because of that um you know whether you succeed or fail but i think for me it's about doing the things that you would want to do with you know the time that you have on this earth and like the biggest cliche that i speak about all the time which is you know, th- something you'd expect is that life is short and that you need to make most of the opportunity you have. And it's, it is honestly the biggest cliche I could think of, but it's so true. Like as someone who has realized how short life can be based on the fact that I shouldn't be here right now, like I can say that I wake up every single day and I do want to make the most of it because I know how quickly it can change. Yes, 100%. That's so good. I, I absolutely love your mindset and everything you said is bang on. So true. Um, tell me a little bit about quickly the physio quote. I want to end the podcast with that quote because I think it was really incredible. He, um, you know, is a good friend of yours. You had a long journey together and he said a particular quote to you that really, really helped you. What was that quote? Yeah, we, uh, we caught up for coffee this morning, actually. So obviously a very important person in my, in my life. So this, this quote from, from Scott, my physio came when I was, um, it was actually when I was in recovery from the surgery. Um, where he had sent me a message just to, you know, wish me well to um, to offer his help and his support and his services in physiotherapy. But that, like, tangible help is great. But for me, it was the belief that he had in the quote that he said, which is that regardless of the prognosis, you've got a long road ahead of you. And then he said, people fail not from aiming too high and missing, but from aiming too low and hitting. Look ahead with determination and set lofty goals. And that, for me, that set up what I've been able to achieve today. Like that, everything I just spoke about then as far as, you know, what you can achieve in the time that you have on this earth, if you can look at it through that lens of not being able, not being afraid of failing and aiming higher than what you think rather than, you know, having all this untapped potential left on the table. 
I think is where a lot of people can can learn a lot in the way in which we we try to aspire for the things that we really want in life. So true, which is exactly why I wanted to leave that quote at the end of this podcast today. Because <laughs> everything you said was so perfect and I was like, I'm gonna lead it with I'm gonna end it with the quote. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brett, thank you so much for giving us your time today and sitting down with me and having a chat. I know You've told this story a bazillion times, but I really appreciate it. And also just, you know, going through the medical side of things, I found it so fascinating. So thank you so much for like trusting me with, with all those documentations as well, because it made this podcast what it is. So thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thanks for having me. And uh, I, I'm glad that you enjoyed that side of things. It's nice to have someone that, that appreciates it, like I said before, but it's a like you said, you know, I've shared the story a bazillion times and that that is true, but there's always purpose in sharing the story. There's always that one person that could hear it and get something out of it that could help them. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. You're so welcome. Now, guys, if you are keen to watch the documentary, it's called Attacking Life. It's on Stan. So if you're not a member of Stan, jump on and become a member of Stan. And if you like this episode, make sure to give us five stars and share this episode around and Brett has a website as well, brettconlon.com.au, I believe. And is it .au? No, no .au. Oh, it's always a .com, isn't it? Brettconlon.com. And um, you've got all your bits and pieces about what you're getting up to as well. So follow, guys, and share the love. Thank you again, Brett, for coming on For the Health of It podcast. Thank you.